Um, okay, so I know Wanma had another question too. Uh, you yes. Hi again, Tom. So um, I'd like to ask, <laughs> um, I'd like to ask, um, ask a, a couple of questions uh, uh, from my friend Christina from Barcelona, who doesn't have the opportunity to be here today. So um, uh, the first question is about um, transgenerational stuff that is kind of carried over to uh, a different generation, not um, not between the, uh, the our previous experience uh, and in a previous life but from kind of the same uh, environment, but from uh, members of your family, like relatives or siblings or grandparents or grand-grandparents or something like that. So um, are those emotional traumas um, carried over to the next generation somehow? And uh, you're probably familiar with family constellations, stuff like that. So what's your view on that? Okay. There can be some, some uh, carryover. And it doesn't, you know, we talk about our genetics um, you know that we get a lot of we get a lot of our personality and we get a lot of our physical properties right from our genetics, but we we can add to that we can change that more easily than most people think. We kind of think that we don't really change that genetics except maybe over a hundred thousand years. Or, you know, it's a long time for you to change your genetics. I mean, we still look at the genetics of humans and you can find pieces of it that belong to Neanderthal and pieces of it, you know, that belongs to chimpanzees. Well, like 97% of it or something belongs, you know, still with chimpanzees. And here's the little Neanderthal part. So yes, some of the stuff in genes is, seems to be unchangeable, but we can modify things. We can change things. It's a hugely complex system by which this body has evolved and we can make those changes. So if, Let's say um, a mother is pregnant with a child and she has a very scary experience. That scary experience can affect that child. Well, we can look at that by, with biochemistry. We can say, oh, well, there was a lot of adrenaline pumped into the system and that child, as it was developing, got washed with adrenaline and that changed the way things happened. You see, well, what that does is it tells that fetus that it's a scary environment out there. This is a very scary place to be because there's lots of adrenaline in the blood and you only get that, you know, if you're frightened. So that lets that fetus know that it's a scary place. And now that fetus comes into the world believing that this is a scary place. So they tend to be more timid, more, uh, um, you know, they tend to be different. And now when that child grows up and has children, they may pass some of that on. So see, there was just an event that scared mom. You know, she just may have been foolish enough to be sitting in a horror movie. You know, it may have been nothing more frightening than that. And that then may get passed on to her child, and her child passes it on to her child and whatever, just because of that wash of, of adrenaline. So things can happen on a small scale that affect our genetics, and they obviously can happen on a big scale. That affects our genetics. And I guess if you look at um, Bruce Lipton, he talks about epigenetics, which lets you know that the mind can modify your genetics. Well, that's the being frightened modifies genetics. So things can happen like that. And yes, you'll find that, that uh, there are certain cultures that babies born to that culture have certain attitudes that go along with that culture. And it's not that they get acculturated later after they're born. They actually come in with a proclivity to that sort of attitude. Now, yes, those attitudes can be changed. It's not like environment doesn't play. Environment does play. But there's a, there's, there's a lot of genetics at play, too, even in things like attitudes, the way you see the world, your, your worldview, your perspective. Nobody takes little children and gives them worldview classes to teach them, you know, what their worldview should be like. That just comes with them, and they pick it up just out of their environment because we do communicate telepathically with each other all the time. So, yes, genetics can be changed. There can be things that uh, run through generation to generation to generation that aren't necessarily obvious things like red hair or, you know, a strong jaw or, you know, being over six feet tall. There's a lot of attitudinal things 
that fall in there as well. But now what we're given with our genetics is just what we have to work with. Those genetics don't define us. We're not defined by our genetics. We can change some of that ourselves. So even though mom was frightened and we come into the world timid, we can change that. We can work through that and change it because our own mind modifies you know, uh, matter as well. So it's not that that genetics dooms us to some sort of a, of a way of being. It just gives us proclivities, which then are a challenge for us to work with. So, yeah, genetics is not something that we're stuck with except in kind of big picture stuff. Some genetics you're stuck with, um, obviously. You know, if you're six feet tall and you only want to be three feet tall, you're not going to make that happen, you know, because you, you uh, intend to change. That intention just would be too hard to do. Some things you are stuck with, but there's a lot of things you aren't. So does that answer your question, or have I? Uh... Yeah. yeah, there's a second angle of the same question. Is how uh, when there's some emotional trauma that is carried over, um, how do you actually solve that? I mean, what's your uh, recommended approach to solve, to try to solve that uh, problem, that uh, wound, if you will? Well, I think it's the same way whether that uh, emotional trauma came through genetics or whether it came through experience. You know, if you have a, you can have experiences that leave you with emotional trauma. Let's say, uh, you know, your mother's an alcoholic and when she gets drunk, she beats you, you know, well, that's going to leave you with trauma. So by the time you're grown up and you've been beaten every day by your mom, it's going to affect you. You're not going to be the same person that, that didn't happen. And the question would, well, how do you get over it? I think, the same way, whether it's environmental or whether it's genetic, you get over it the same way, and that is with intent. You use your intent, you you deal with that fear, you meet it head on, you accept it, and now you try to be different, not act different, but be different. Acting different may be a a first step, but being different is really where you where you're, you're going with it. And you know, some of those may be easier, harder than others. Some of them may just be too hard to do. You know, we can't have everything we want. Sometimes we just have to accept and deal with it. Sometimes we can't change it. Like if you're three foot tall and you want to be six foot tall or vice versa, you just can't change that. You're not, you may, when you're 12 and you really want to be tall, you want to be a bigger person and you think about it, well, you may add two or three inches to your height by having that intent then. But now that you're 40, and you want to add another four inches to your height, eh, it's not likely to happen. It's going to be a lot harder because they don't have the uncertainty, you see, with which and you can work. As long as there's uncertainty, you have an, it's easier to have an effect. No uncertainty or very little uncertainty, then it's very hard to do it. So I'd say how you change it is the same as how you change trauma from anything. You know, mm -hmm. some situations are just traumatic, and you have to have the courage to face it, accept it, and deal with it. You may be able to change it and get rid of it, or you may just have to learn how to deal with it, and you can't get rid of it. But you do what you can, and once you accept it and you're no longer, you know, you're no longer wringing your hands over it because you've just accepted it, then it, the pain goes away. It's not painful anymore. It's just the way you are, okay? You were only born to be three feet tall. Well, that makes you a midget, I guess, and you just deal with that. And it's not painful because you accept it and it's okay, you know? It's only when you sit around and say, oh, no, man, why me? Why am I only three foot tall? You know, I wanted to be a basketball player. And you get it up into a self-pity thing. Now it's painful and it's terrible and it's a horrible thing and it just will make you miserable. So accepting it is a, is a, you know, a very important part of it. Some things you can change, some things you just have to accept. But eventually, you should be able to grow, no matter what the issue is, to a point where you're happy, life is good, and you can go on and learn things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, um, still on emotional traumas, but from previous experiences, uh, do you think uh, things like the way we die in a previous life or something like that is kind of carried over as uh, rational fears that have nothing to do with something that we have experienced in this um, existence? Yeah, sometimes, but not all that often. Sometimes you can get some um, 
know, what we'll call it, the bleed through or, uh, you know, overlap between, say, a past life and this life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that'll happen if there was something so traumatic that it really made a big difference to your individuated unit of consciousness. So you have an individuated unit of consciousness that's had maybe 10,000 lifetimes. And if it's had 10,000 lifetimes, it's seen and done a lot of stuff. You know, some of it's been pretty horrible. Some of it's been wonderful. Some of it's been boring. But then something really awful happens to it. It can probably just integrate that in, and it's not a big deal, right? But let's say it's only your third incarnation, not your, you know, not your 10,000th, and something really traumatic happens. Well, that trauma kind of hangs heavy in, your, in, your, in yourself at the being level. That's a major part of you now. And that major part of you is liable some of that to go through when you take a piece of yourself as a free will awareness unit. Some of that trauma will go through. So sometimes if the trauma is big enough and if it stands out enough amongst the whole, yes, that can happen. If it's not an outstanding thing, it generally just gets absorbed and said, oh, yeah, that was that was the way that one ended up. You know, it's not but it's not a big deal in the IUOC's life because a lot of them ended up strangely, you know, you had this real big thing going and you got run over by a bus just before, you know, it came to fruition. Well, life's like that. And you just go off and you do another one. Not real traumatic. Well, you shouldn't be born the next time terrified of buses. You know, it's not likely to, to be that way can be, but not likely to be that way. But yeah, it does happen occasionally. And it happens at the beginning ends, the beginning parts of the of the uh, IUOC, rather so much than at the the later parts. You know, the more the, the more experience an IUOC has, the less that's going to affect it. Sometimes you'll get somebody who wants to play a particular role, somebody that something means a lot to them. It was very successful the last time they did it, so they want to do it again. And that then. Is like the kid that comes in, like, uh, you know, Mozart or Beethoven, and at three years old, you know, he's playing uh, very complex uh, music from sight. And that, uh, that kind of a thing is probably kind of pre-programmed, if you will, pre-planned. That was a, that was a plan. Let's, let's do that. You know, this will be a good experience for me. Um, that happens, too that uh, somebody will come in and already seems to be programmed on some path to do something that's very, very unusual. And that's usually a choice that's made, not just, you know, not just because uh, it could be, I mean, you know, there's lots of ways that things can happen. It could be that that particular entity has been a musician for the last 20 times in a row and it's kind of stuck in that rut, but uh, probably not. It's probably a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so the second question is um, is about uh, guides and uh, anything related to guides, like um, for example, what's your view on uh, shamanism and the fact that there would uh, there would be some entities that um, guide us. Uh, so I've heard you talk about that in in terms of uh, sometimes it's just an interface to the to the larger consciousness system. Mm-hmm. It's not just another being. Uh, but uh, what do you view on, on guides? Is it likely that we have uh, guides, uh, or how frequent is that? Okay. If you can use one, you've got one. <laughs> If you can't use one, you maybe don't. Okay. <laughs> It's a, it, it is an interface with the individual, with the system, and that interface is done by need. Is it useful? So you wouldn't, if there's somebody who just, You know, isn't going to find a guide useful. Let's say they're very left brain. They think all of that sort of thing is nonsense and they're not going to, you know, just doesn't play to them. If something talked to them, they'd think it was just their own imagination playing tricks on them and it wouldn't give them any, you know, they wouldn't say, oh, that's my guide trying to talk to me. You know, it just would be something they'd toss off. Well, there's, They don't have an interface. You don't have an interface to programs that you don't have loaded on your computer. You know, if you're not going to run the program, if you're not interested, then you don't get the interface. So, no, not everybody has a guide. But if you could use one, if getting that kind of help would make a difference in your ability to grow up, then, yes, you'll get that help. And you might have more than one. You may have two or three because 
there's two or three different interfaces that work good for you. You see, so it's not uh, it's not a fixed it's not a fixed thing. And you can have you can have a guide and it just doesn't work for you. And if you if that's the way it is, then you can change, get a different interface. I don't like that interface. I need to develop another one. Let that one go and you can change that and get a different interface. Mm -hmm. The interface that you have is part of your own creation. It's not just this thing that comes and talks to you. It's a it's a shared thing. It's part of your own it's part of your own creation as well. So it's a custom made interface just for you. Okay. So how frequent how or how frequently is that another being instead of just an interface? Oh, how frequently? Well, it's almost always. You know, we're getting into the, the what defines a being here. You see. The larger consciousness system does this posing as a being, okay? But you'd say it's the system's interface with you as a such, such a being. Now, what's the probability that it's something else that doesn't have anything to do with the larger consciousness system? Well, there isn't anything that doesn't have anything to do with the larger consciousness system. You are also connected to the larger consciousness system. You are a, a subset of it. Your guide is a subset of it. Everything out there that's going to talk to you is a subset of it. So now we're talking about where does the, you know, in what source does the free will originate? Well, that's kind of a, no, now we're getting into details. Does the free will originate in the LCS or does the free will originate in some IUOC someplace? And which of those things would you call guides and which would you just call friends? You see, well, you can be interfacing with other individual units of consciousness and you might want to call them a guide if you want if they're if they give you guidance or they may just be a friend or an acquaintance there's all sorts of categories but everything that you talk to everything that's conscious is conscious by being a piece of the larger consciousness system so it's all part of the same thing so where would that come from i don't know depends on how you interact with it if this is something that just comes and helps you uh, make good decisions or synchronicity things that you need to learn just falls in front of you that's probably an lcs if it's somebody you chat with at night about you know who's going to win the next world series or whatever it is that you chat about then that's probably just some other iuoc mm -hmm. so it kind of depends on how you interface with it or what it is but you can interface with all kinds of things all taken back every one of them is a piece of the lcs none of them are anything different than that Okay, thank you. Uh, I actually have uh, more questions, but I don't know if someone I'll else has. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Tom. It's good. I do have a question regarding uh, psychedelics. My son was addicted to many different drugs in the past, and um, in the search of actually helping him, I have come across um, a spiritual medicine plant in Peru called Ayahuasca. And since I have actually uh, gotten in touch with the, uh, a fairly large community of um, uh, uh, supporters of spiritual medicine plants, and um, what is your opinion about uh, the use of hallucinogenic substances like LSD or ayahuasca in, in when it comes to raising the consciousness level? Okay. I know you're against um, it, but what is, like, how, how do they work? And... Um, and um, uh, do they really play, play a role? Yeah, I wouldn't so much say I'm against it. Is it just most of the time it's not useful in the long term? Sometimes it's useful in the short term. For those people who have the experience of the larger system because they take a drug and that then turns them on to growing up because now they want to grow up in that system now that they know it's there. Well, then it turns out to be a good thing. But for people who take the drug to have the experience, and then, wow, that was a really good experience, so they take the drug to have another one, and then they take the drug to have another one because these experiences are all really nifty, and they feel big and part of the whole thing and love and peace and everything works great, so they have another experience. That's not such a good thing. You keep taking the drug to have the experience, and eventually that will make it even more difficult for you to have the experience without the drug. You become dependent on that drug for your, your spirituality, if you will. And you find out that 
most people who do that probably think they are more grown up and evolved than they really are because they've had a lot of experience in spiritual things, but that experience isn't really their own. It's the drugs creates that experience for them. So if the experience is not yours, then you're just a, um, uh, you know, you're, what's the word, uh, vicarious. You're just along as, you know, kind of vicariously experiencing that experience, but it's a drug-based experience. You don't learn as much. You don't grow up as much. It becomes more left brain. It's facts. Oh, I experienced this. I was one with the universe. I was one with the grass and the trees. I felt all this love. And you have those experiences, but you know, you can get on a roller coaster and have a really wild experience. And it's it's not it doesn't change you and make you better in the sense that you don't change at the being level because you take a drug. You change in the, your experience base now is much broader. You're more um, you're not as provincial as you were. You see bigger pictures, but it's not because you've grown up as an individual so much as it is you just have broader experience. There's a difference between growing up at the being level and just having an experience. So if the if the drugs help you get started, and then you let them alone and do it on your own, it can be a good thing. But if you depend on the drug to have to have the experience, if you're if your your spirituality is drug dependent, then in the long run, it doesn't take you very far. And what I've found that it seems to take people a short way down that path, and then it tends to bog them down. They get because it's not in, organic to them. It's something that's done to them rather than something they do. They get bogged down into ideas of what's going on and they have voices telling them to do this and that and all the structure starts to get up around it and that basically is all of their own creation because they they don't really have the tools to work with it and they end up you know on their own they end up getting all wadded up into things that they create and they seem to be spiritual and they seem to be real, but they're really in over their head. And that's been my experience with people. I've known some people, I've had some friends who have taken ayahuasca and, and so on. And it's easy to end up getting, getting wound up in your own game, in your own head, because you don't really know the difference. You don't understand. You're not... You don't understand that there are various sources of data, and they all seem as real as any others. You don't really understand the big picture so much as you just experience it. So that's my thing. I don't say it's a bad thing to do. I say that if you do it too often, too much, it doesn't really lead to you becoming love. It mostly leads to you becoming confused and and uh, thinking that things are one way when they're not, thinking things are real. You don't understand how much your own data creation is part of the story that you're that you're getting if you do this naturally without the drug then you become aware of your own creation into the story and you can be properly skeptical of it if you go into it through drugs you don't have that understanding so i don't know if that helps but uh it's a it's a thing that will give you spiritual experiences it will blow you off, up, you know, take you off into that out-of-body place. And it's not that it's fake or that it's false, but it's different than becoming it if you just get it because you take a drug. It's not the same thing, and it's not changing you at the being level. Look at the people you know who are taking a lot of ayahuasca, and they may act and sound very you know, more spiritual than they were before. But when you know them personally, like you know these people really personally, you know them well, are they really love inside? Is that's what motivates them? Is what they go through their day is about service to other people, about caring, about love? Is it all about how they can, what they can provide and give to others? Or is it about themselves and their experience in the next trip and how much they've learned 
And, you know, is it more self-focused? I've found my experience is that they tend to be, they tend to grow to become more self-focused in their spirituality rather than, rather than becoming uh, love. It's just my experience. You may have a different experience. You know, my experience is only with a few people. Well, I've, I um, realized that a lot of people who have turned to drugs is because of some um, um, psychological um, traumas or issues that they have. And it's just uh, to numb um, uh, that um, pain that they have inside. And um, and in my research, I, I actually found that ayahuasca can help them to overcome those um, emotional traumas or to realize um, why um, things happened the way they did and have a larger picture. And this is how uh, ayahuasca in particular um, happens to be rated one of the um, um, very highly when it comes to allowing people to get rid of um, harmful substances. Um, that yeah, uh, work. I can agree with that. I can see that it could do that. Yeah, as a uh, like a therapeutic tool, you know, with working with people who have issues and need bigger pictures, I can see it being a useful tool. But that would work best in a in a more clinical environment where there was somebody to help those people put those pieces together and see it and take that that bigger picture and turn that into a change at the being level. If there's, if there's kind of have an environment where that gets helped and that gets done, then I think it could be a pretty powerful medicine. Um, but where it's just, you know, let's, let's bunch of us get together and go, you know, do some drugs and it's not in that kind of a supportive environment that, you know, it's not in that clinical context of trying to help solve a problem. It's in a, it's in the, it's in the context of, let's go have a you know good time let's go have a spiritual experience then's when i find the the problem with it yeah i can see that it could be uh used in a clinical uh environment to help people see bigger pictures and get over some issues yes that's uh, there's a lot of these things that you know that unfortunately we ban that we don't look at all the uses for it you know marijuana's like that you know we ban it and it's like the evil weed but there's a lot of good uses that that can be. There's a lot of clinical validity to using that in many ways. There's things that, and we don't study them is the problem. You know, we just, because we're so afraid of it, we never actually develop the uses that we could use that, that in the, you know, the, the, the clinical application to help people kind of falls off the cart because we're too afraid to deal with it or because it's illegal to, to deal with it. And that's a shame. We shouldn't be so trapped in our, in our beliefs, but there's a difference between taking drugs for the experience and taking drugs in a clinical setting to help solve a problem. That's uh, (laughs) yeah. It's all about intent. Yeah. It's all about intent. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, we can turn. All right. Um, Do you have some more questions, Vanessa? Oh, we don't want to take up too much time, so we know others have. No, this is this is your. Is anyone else? Uh, I can bring up some questions from the MBT forum if any. If no one has a question at the moment, or we can keep those until later, since you've got all of your group together. Okay, (laughs) then you go ahead. I know one way you do. I have a quick question that I wanted to ask, Tom. I know you say the more you know, the more that you grow. And I feel like you're, you're saying this in the context of the more you're aware of how the larger consciousness system works, the more you explore larger consciousness and the more you're able to grow. Can you also do it with the more you know based on the understandings of your intellect guiding you? So understanding that we're consciousness, understanding this is, a, this is just a virtual reality. The more I know about that and kind of through the MBT model, will I, will I grow more if I learn more about the MBT model? Well, if you have a bigger picture, you're more likely to make better choices. If you make better choices, you'll grow up better. So having the bigger picture just gives you more choices, gives you, uh, you know, it was like that. It was like that when people traveled. You know, I talk about this knowledge thing and this experience thing, just like traveling. When people traveled a lot and they had bigger pictures and weren't so provincial, they could see viewpoints from other people's side. You know, that everything wasn't just their narrow viewpoint that maybe they grew up with in their little small town, but now they have a much bigger viewpoint. What that does is it gives them more choices. 
before something would happen and there'd just be these three or four ways they'd react to it. And that's all they knew. Well, now that they've traveled, they can see a bigger picture. There's other ways, another perspective that you can have on this. And growing up, what you're talking about, it's the same thing. Yes, if you get a bigger picture, you have more choices. Therefore, you can make better choices because you have a selection now of a thousand choices rather than just 10. Well, out of that thousand, you can probably find something that's optimal for you and on your path. Out of that 10, well, you're kind of limited. So, yes, and I, what I said, what my quote was, that if you, the more you know, the easier it is to know more. And that is that the more you know, again, the bigger picture you have, the easier it is to see even a bigger picture yet. So when you don't know anything is where it's most difficult. The more you know, the easier it is. So what that means is as you learn and grow, it gets easier and easier, and you grow faster and faster, and getting started is the hard part. It starts to accelerate once you get started. Getting started is is uh, is difficult. That first one is the big one. After that, things you know the things start to pick up speed on their own. So yes, getting that intellectual viewpoint of a bigger picture is helpful. It's very helpful. But if that's all you get and you never apply it, eh, you know it makes you more interesting to cocktail parties, but it won't necessarily uh, help you grow up any. You need to do something with it besides just collect the information. There's lots of people who could, you know, there are people who have basically can tell you everything in my books. They've read them three or four times, and they know just everything I said, but it didn't really help them grow up any. Because they're very left brain and they just collected all the facts and never really processed any of them. So they got a head full of facts. So if you're going to get a head full of facts, it probably won't help you much. But if you really get an understanding of how things work, it'll help you a lot. You know, if you get a bigger picture, you'll start to see that, oh, it's important that I grow up. It's not just maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's important that I grow up. I should work on these things. And that comes from having a bigger picture. If you don't have a bigger picture, why should I grow up? I'm having fun. Leave me alone. You see, there's no incentive for growing up. So big pictures help. Yes, a lot. Okay, great. And that gives me hope, too, because it's taking me like two years to get through your book because I really want to absorb it <laughs> and fully integrate at the being level. So it takes forever for me to just get through it. Um, so yeah. that really helps. Thank you. I, another quick question, too, sorry, is just why is it that some people – are so have this burning desire to know our purpose here and to want to evolve and be part of this. And other people couldn't give a damn, like just don't even care about it. It doesn't even cross their radar. What is it just that they're these newbies or like, what is, why is that? Well, the ones, the ones that have a burning desire are probably ones that have been around the block a few more times. Okay. Yes. They probably have more experience, have had more lifetimes have had more success in evolving the quality of their consciousness, and they know there's something there they're trying to find out. You know, they're already kind of triggered to find out, and that's probably part of it. Another part of it has to do with fear. Some people are terrified of finding out who they are. Some people are terrified of finding out that they're, you know, maybe should be doing something different. You know, there are people just very resistant to change, very resistant to anything coming in their life that's different than what they know. They're very frightened of newness, of, mm -hmm. of change. And those people are like that, not just about uh, this reality, but if you tell them, said, you know, uh, you know, eating, uh, eating sugar or preservatives or uh, whatever else, you know, swallowing gasoline, you know, something, whatever it is they're doing that's really damaging to their health, and you shouldn't do that. And some people will say, oh, thank you. I didn't know that. It was a problem. And they'll learn from it. But there'll be most people will just blow you off and say, ah, leave me alone. I don't want to know about that. Because if they yeah. knew about it, they'd have to change. And that would be scary. They'd, they'd feel responsible. They don't want to feel responsible. They won't want to change. They're happy yeah. where they are. You know, that's, uh, you know, uh, ignorance is bliss sort of thing. They're ignorant and they're blissful and they don't want to change that. So yeah. don't bring me facts that make me change my life. Don't bring me ideas that cause me to change my eating habits. You know, yeah. that all that stuff is just an interference to me. 
I don't want to go there because that's, that's scary. So they're just people who are frightened of change and growing up. They like what they're doing. They've settled into a rut and they want to stay there. So yes, yes, that you find that you find that about everything, not just about growing up, but about food, about anything. Yeah. Definitely. It's like when that documentary Cowspiracy came out, I was telling everybody and they're like, I don't want to know about that. I like my meat. I don't want to hear the whole truth. Right. They want to keep continuing right. doing what they're doing. Layla's asking, um, right. what were you asking? No, I'm asking. And now if you have a person that you care for, that's exactly in that rut, should you just leave them there or should you step in? Well, what you can do for people is you can try to open their mind to a bigger picture. But you need to do that gently. It's not grabbing them by the collar and shaking them and say, wake up, listen to this. You can just bring it up and talk about it. Give them that opportunity and show them maybe where they can find some resources. And if they don't take it, you know, you've offered an opportunity. If they don't take it, then let them be. No, don't force them. Don't push them. Just let them be. Everybody has to live their own life in their own way. People learn from mistakes. So if they, you know, uh, whatever they do, you know, I, I had a, uh, a person that was uh, part of my family, and uh, this was years ago. They smoked, and but that was the time when it was just becoming known that the cigarette smoke would give you a higher probability of getting lung cancer. And uh, I talked with them and said, well, you know, do you think you're thinking about maybe stopping? You know, that's not a good thing to do. And your children and everybody's breathing all the secondhand smoke. And if you thought about that, and they just basically blew it all off. And no, oh, I'm not worried. And my time comes. That's okay. Everybody's time has to come sometime. And mine will come sometime, too. And life's just like that. And, you know, give me another cigarette. They just didn't want to hear it because if they took that seriously, they'd have responsibility. Now there'd be something they'd have to do, and they don't want any responsibility. Okay, So these people have mindsets like children. They have mindsets like, you know, six-year-olds feel the same way. They don't want responsibility either. Take out the trash. Clean up your room. No, they don't want to know about that. They don't want to do it. Responsibility is something to avoid. Well, this person died of lung cancer before her child even graduated from high school. And my guess is that when that end came, she didn't have this attitude of, oh, well, my time will come anytime and it doesn't matter. And, you know, things aren't important. She probably had a whole different attitude to it. And I hope that she learned something very important that next time she does an incarnation, she'll have a little different sense about looking at bigger pictures seeing things, taking responsibility, you see. So people learn things. And sometimes that, that, sometimes that lesson costs your life, you know. But you have to let people learn things in their own way. You can't force people to see it your way. They have to come to it. This is perfect, exactly what I was looking for. So now, do you wish, because this ended tragically, do you wish that you were more forceful in your attempt to help her? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Had I been more forceful, all I would have done is made her feel worse. You see, when you tell people when you're forceful, you upset people. You make them happy. You're pushing them in ways they don't want to go. And uh, that's not that's not a good thing. You have to let them be. And, of course, raising children, you have this this point of as they grow up, you have to let them make mistakes. You see, mom and dad can't always keep them safe and always keep them away from from making bad decisions. When they're little, yeah, when they're five years old, you say, don't go out of the yard. And you, if they go out of the yard, you put a lock on the gate. You put up a fence. You force them to stay in the yard. You're in charge. They're not. You dominate them. Force your free will on them because they're only five years old. They can't make those kinds of decisions. But now when they're 14 and 15 and 16 and 18 and 25, you have to start letting that go. And you have to realize they need to make decisions and they will learn from their mistakes. Well, you don't want that mistake to be horrible. You know, mistake ends in death, right? You don't want that mistake. What you can do as a parent is to say, look, here are some of the possibilities. Here are the choices. 
you can do this five different ways. You can do this way, and if you go this route, this is kind of what happens. You go that route, this sort of thing happens. You go this other route, and, you know, you're not so cool, and you won't necessarily be on the cool team, but, you know, other things will happen that will be good. And you just go through possibilities, and you tell them the up and the downside of every possibility. Every possibility has its good points and bad points. Tell them all the good points and all the bad points about every possibility, and then let them choose. Now I'm talking about a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old, okay? You're talking about, you give them opportunities, let them choose. And if it's a, and, but see, the thing is, if you tell them about these poor choices, not that you call them poor choices, they're just another one of the choices. You don't tell them which one the right choice is. You just give them choices. You don't tell them, oh, this is what you should do. This is the good choice, and those are bad choices. You say, here are some different ways you can do it and some of the places they lead. Now, if they make that, if they make a bad choice, they'll have information about how that starts to unravel. If you start down this path, here's some of the things that will start to happen to you. You see, that are, here's some of the good things that can happen to you. Here's some of the bad things that can happen to you. Now they have that information. So they make a bad choice. They start to do that, but because of what you've given them, they see the sign early on of where it's going, where it's leading. Uh-oh, out, you know, that comes next here. And then after that, there's something else. Well, maybe I'll just do it anyway and see what happens. And then they see that something else starts to happen. Well, then they back out. And it's all because you gave them the information that they helped them make better choices, not because you told them what to do. So that's how you can help. Your children. So, so it seems my dilemma. It seems between allowing the person to be them authentic selves or save them from the harm. So it's a higher love to let the person be authentic selves than prevent them from the harm. In this situation, right? Well, yeah. It depends on you know. It, you know, there are all kinds of choices, and it depends on the age and competency of the person that you're talking to. But in general, yes, it's better to let people be themselves. Not try to tell them what the right answer is. Not try to live their life for them and say, here's the right answers, you know, because that turns out to be very arrogant. I know what's best for you and you don't. So just be obedient and everything will be all right. Well, now you want to be their master. That's not good. When they're five years old, yeah, that's very good. You have to be their master. As they get older, you got to stop that and stop being their master. Instead, be somebody who can guide them not tell them what to do. So it's a, it's a fine point. It depends on the situation, you know, uh, but generally once they become adults, even at young adults, you just need to give them information and let them make the decision that will empower them. When you tell them what they have to do, that disempowers them. That makes it hard for them to grow up. Let them make the choice, but give them the kind of information that if that choice turns out to be a poor one, they figure that out sooner rather than later. So it's all about information. And, and if you don't give that information, and here's the good information and the bad information, you can't tell them how to make the choice. Let them make the choice. Thanks. This was excellent. Thank you. I really needed to hear this. Thank yeah. you. And that's like the quote, um, the best teacher is the one who tells you where to look, but he doesn't tell you what to see. Right? It's the same kind yes. of thing. Yes, same kind of thing. Thank you. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, so, um, You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, um, a couple of questions uh, about uh, a couple of weird experiences. Uh, one of, uh, one, one of the, the first one is actually from my friend, uh, Christina, again. So, she saw a plane crash, a vision about a plane crash that uh, was supposed to be in the past because she was so sure it was in the past, but it never happened. So uh, I've heard you talk about the unactualized past database, but uh, why would someone see such a vision if it never happened in the past? Well, there's a couple of reasons why one might see that. Um, one might have created out of their own imagination. Uh, <laughs> why? Because they were looking for something dramatic. They were looking for something evidential and dramatic. And they didn't come to them, so they just made it up. Not that they intellectually just made it up, but it, you know, if you have an intent to see something and nothing comes, then you have a, you can fill that order yourself. You put out a query, 
and you could be filling that order yourself without knowing it. Okay, so that's one thing. Uh, another thing is that you maybe uh, have uh, done a lot of that kind of viewing and gotten a lot of visions, and most of them have been good, and you're starting to depend on them uh, because you're starting to even run your life by them because they've worked out really well for you, and now you may get a vision of something that is totally wrong just to tell you you have to be skeptical. Don't just take everything that comes to you and do it. So the system will sometimes throw you a curveball just to let you know that that uh, you need to remain skeptical. You need to, to, to make your choices based on your own decisions, not on a vision or not on your horoscope or something else. You start giving your free will up to some other process other than you making the decision when you do that. So that could be a possibility. It could be that it's out of a that you were looking for a particular crash of some sort and you didn't have good intent and now you get it out of the past, you know, database that didn't happen. Or it could be that the crash actually did happen and you just don't know about it because it happened in a plane on the other side of the world that didn't have anybody really of notability on it and they just cleaned up the mess and, you know, buried the dead and never got past local news. You know, maybe that was what happened. It's hard to say. There's lots of possibilities that that thing can happen, like that can happen. But the bottom line is always be skeptical. Just because you get something that's like given to you as a message, it may be nonsense. It may be your own invention. It may be something very valuable. You have to be skeptical and treat everything as, I don't know where that came from. Well, let me see what I can do with it. Mm-hmm. Don't treat it from oh I got a message from God I need to you know I need to go act on it that will eventually get you in trouble. Okay. So it's a it's you know I don't know I, I think part of it could be just a lesson not to believe everything you hear everything you get everything you hear everything you see. Um, the system is very vast and very complex and you could get you know, I, I ask when I get things like that that I don't know where they come from. I kind of set them aside and I think, what can I learn from that? You know, where's the lesson in that? And sometimes the lesson is just ignore it. Some (laughs) things need to just be ignored. That's the lesson, you know? Okay. Yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, And the second one is uh, that actually happened to myself a few weeks ago. So I was sleeping. I was having a dream about something else. And then suddenly I woke up. I wasn't completely awake, maybe, I don't know, 90, 95% or something like that. And then I heard something, uh, uh, some noise uh, with, that was supposed to come from a phone. And I was like, it's the middle of the night. Is my wife actually using her phone right now? And then I turned left and she was, she was sleeping. And then I went back to my dream. And after a few minutes dreaming again, uh, something happened that made sense to make that noise. So um, uh, my first idea when I woke up in the morning was like, okay, maybe I made that up, but it doesn't make any sense or it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, because I was actually awake when that happened uh, before I actually uh, made up or came up with a a way to actually create that noise. So um, my first idea was that it was maybe a nudge, a nudge from the system, uh, but uh, is there any other possible explanation for that? kind of time uh delay it's hard yeah it's hard to say do you you know how how certain can you be that you were awake sometimes people think they're awake they're almost certain they're awake and they're actually not awake at all you know again again i'd look i'd look at it and say um uh you know what's the lesson here and sometimes you just can't find one sometimes it's like well i don't know and i guess the lesson then is to just put that in the i don't know pile and see if any data comes up about it later, you know, but uh, there's any re- any number of reasons. You know, a lot of people, when the first times they go out of body, they know they're awake and they think they are sitting up in their bed and whatever. And they get up to go across the room and get a glass of water or something. And they turn around and they see their body still sleeping in the bed. And it's like, wow, you know, they thought they were awake walking around. So you don't know. Sometimes when you're awake, you only think you're awake and sometimes not. Uh, 
it's hard to tell in that kind of a situation. There's so much uncertainty around so much that it's just, I'd say what I do with it is just look and look for the lesson. And if there is none, let it go. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Hey, Bojana has a you know how um, there's a common belief that full moon may have influence on behavior of some people. So um, I just would like to have your opinion. Do you believe that astrology or astronomy have, have anything to do with the way um, we are acting, reacting, making decisions, basically in our lives? Is there anything to do with it? Well, uh, an astrologer is much like any other uh, soothsayer, you know, tea leaf reader, um, you know, toss the chicken bones, uh, you know, uh, flip the coins and, and do the I Ching, pull out a hexagram, you know, they're, they're similar to that in that they are connecting to the database. They're intuitive. They will, they will look and see, well, what, you know, what is, you know, they have an intent and when they have an intent to see what's going on or how do I interpret all these stars and moons and things, what's the interpretation, you know, cause you can interpret it a lot of different ways. They're having an intent to see what's going on and to see what makes sense. What's, what's likely to happen in your future. And they'll get information that helps them do that interpretation. And that's what they're giving. So in a way, whether you're, they're shuffling a tarot deck or reading tea leaves or using uh, you know astrology, they have to be tuned in and get their information from a database. That's why good astrologers and tea leaf readers, you know, can't be replaced by computers. You can have a computer do a horoscope, and computers will do horoscopes that are very blah, you know, very plain vanilla for the most part even though they can do them more precisely than any human being can do them because they can do them to 14 decimal places, right? They know exactly where those planets are supposed to be and where they were and, and where they aren't and so on, where the moon was. They can calculate that more accurately than any person is going to calculate it with their little calculator. So why wouldn't they be more accurate in their prognostications? Well, it doesn't have to do just with the positions of those heavenly bodies. It has to do with the fact that a good astrologer is connected to the databases and can get information about what's likely to happen. So it's, it's similar to the tarot card deck or the I Ching. That deck, those heavenly body positions become part of a, of a, um, of a tool set that helps them get data from the database. So it's an interactive thing between them, the database, and the tool set. And they work all of that, and they come up with something. And yes, an astrologer can be very accurate of not only describing you, but of telling you about things that are likely to happen. Now, again, it's just probable futures. The future isn't done deal. It's just probable. But they can get into that probable reality like anybody else. So a good tea leaf reader is actually good. They can tell you a lot of things by looking in those tea leaves laying around in the bottom of the cup. And they are accurate in as much as they get accurate data from the larger consciousness system, from the future probable database. If they aren't, if they're just faking it, well, then they're just faking it. You know, they don't have any information at all. But these things like tea leaves and, and uh, astrology and tarot cards and throwing, you know, the, the old thing, right, that the shaman does is he throws a bag full of bones, you know, chicken bones out on the ground and sees how they land. And depending on how they land, he comes up with a, with a story about your future. Um, those things are tools that help the person using that tool to extract data from the database. And it's a three-way thing between the database, the user, and the tool of how they work that. So it can be very accurate, and there can be a lot to it, or it can be nonsense. Depends on the the capability of the person doing it. So, in other words, without the specific awareness uh, and intention of us, the um, constellations will have nothing to do with how our our life consciousness evolves on Earth. Well, I don't know. You know, I wouldn't go quite that far. I'd say, yeah, pretty much. I would agree with you, 
but I wouldn't necessarily I wouldn't necessarily go quite that far to put it that strongly. <coughs> Excuse me. There is there is ability uh, that there is some some uh, connection there. Okay, and it's a it's like this. If you you've heard of like Myers Briggs, it's a test. It's a personality test people take, and they put them in categories. And these people are, have this kind of personality, and those people have others. And there's three or four other things like that. There's a, a, a lady who does a test of cognitive that's more like instinctual proclivities. And anyway, they have these sorts of tests that sort people into groups. Well, that's the way it is with the astrologers, right? You got 12 different signs and you sort people into groups. Well, they find that these little, little psychology tests, like Myers-Briggs is the one that's most popular, so I'll just say that that uh, they tend to work pretty well. They do sort people into groups, and if you're in this group, you do tend to react and interact with people in that way. And if you're in some other group, you do tend to act and interact in that way. So people can be divided up into groups that have some kind of a meaning uh, based on lots of things. Well, most of those things like Myers-Briggs, you take a little test. You answer 20 questions, and it puts you into one of those what, 12 or 14 categories by how you answer the questions. With astrology, it's just, it's just where you were born. But what it says is that people can be uh, divided into, into subgroups that have meaning. See, if everybody was just different from everybody else, if everybody was just kind of random, then you couldn't group people up like that. There wouldn't be 14 groups that basically cover all the personalities on the planet or in these 14 groups, you see. So there are things that tend to group us up. Well, why would that be? Why do we end up with this, these groupings that can occur by personality? Well, I think that when the larger kinds of systems makes IUOCs, it tends to make them according to a template, things that work. Again, you know, from this thing I answered before, you know, well, where would the template come from? Well, it's just evolution. You know, it's what works. So it's probably come up with 10 or 14 or 15 or 20 different kinds of basic IUOCs that interact well together, or work well in this kind of a thing. And it may have just created them that way rather than everything is a random draw. Because if everything's a random draw, then you're going to get a lot of nonsense and bad stuff that's dysfunctional out on the ends. You're not going to get much potential. You can get you get a lot of stuff. So it'd be better to kind of say, well, here's a here's a set of things, and we'll draw from that. We'll throw away this this wild stuff. We don't want that. Well, that tends to put people into into groups. Now, would the larger consciousness say, well, in order to help people see bigger pictures, I might just uh, you know, use the the uh, birth month or something as a as a as a grouping. Possible. I don't know that I give that a lot of credibility, but I'm just saying it's possible. So you ask me, is it possible that anything could happen? And I'll tell you, anything's possible. You know, I don't know. Uh, they do seem to be pretty good at at uh, you know coming up with personality types, just like those tests are. So could that, in fact, be because the system purposely does that to give us this clue about a bigger reality? Could be. Could be that that's the way it is. I don't know. So, no, I don't like to throw things out that say, nah, that's impossible. It doesn't work that way. I don't know. I'd say maybe that could work that way. Depends on how good it is. If it's really good, if people born under certain signs really are different personalities and it's accurate the way it sorts them out, then there must be some reason for that. And that reason would be that the system set that up just to be a thing that we could do that would let us know that reality was bigger than just this physical materialistic place, you see? So yes, that's possible that that could be that way. Now, in general, I know, though, that the astrologer gets a lot of their data from the from the future probability database because otherwise like i say computers would be the best astrologers ever and they're not so it's not just the astrology 
There's more to it than that, you see. And I know astrologers, and I know that they don't do their astrology while they're, you know, bathing the children and cooking supper. They have to sit down in a quiet place. They have to get their mind into it. They have to be present with it. They basically go into an altered state of consciousness while they're doing their work, and they don't just do it. You know, you know, while they're whistling tunes, you see. So why would they have to go into that kind of mental focus when they're doing their work to get good answers? Well, it's because they're getting data from a database. That's why computers aren't so good at it. Computers don't go into that mental focus and get data out of the database. So I can see that astrology has more to it than just sun signs and where the planets are. But does it actually have that other stuff too? Could be. System could have created that just for us, and that would make sense. It's another one of those things. It's a little, it's a little uh, hint, if you will, for us down here that life is bigger than just, you know, the material world. So does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Tom. We've come to the end of our time of the, for this session of the Fireside Chat. We thank all the people for their wonderful questions, especially in Vancouver. And those people whose questions didn't get asked will we'll be carrying those over to the next session. <laughs>